Welcome to the Amputeo Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo. I can't believe it's season two, everybody, of the Amputeo Show. Season two is promising to be an exciting season with more topics that affects the limb loss community and exciting guests from around the world, including many para-athletes, to share their story and the recent Paralympic Games in Tokyo. So what better way to start off the season right at the heels of the Paralympic Games Tokyo 2020? And joining me today to discuss all that is Lair Borowski of Amplitude Magazine. Welcome to the show, and uh, thank you for being here, Larry. Hey, thanks for having me on, Aristotle. Really glad to be here. All right, so let's start a bit of a background, I guess. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and Amplitude Magazine before we get into the to the nitty-gritty of the Paralympic Games? Absolutely, happy to. Yep, um, I'm uh, the editor of Amplitude Magazine. I became the full-time editor beginning uh, in t- January of 2021. Prior to that, I'd been involved part-time. Um, I am fully able-bodied, and so I'm, I only started to become familiar with the limb loss community uh, in about November of 2019. And so, you know, I've really gotten to meet some incredible people and uh, learn so much about how important it is to normalize limb difference, um, you know, throughout uh, the broader culture. That really is kind of the mission of our publication is to share stories in a way that uh, not only help people live a more rewarding and fulfilling life with limb loss, but also for able-bodied people to understand limb difference in in a more authentic way. And so that's really what our publication tries to do. We tell all kinds of stories, whether it's uh, sports, fashion, travel, uh, you know, like media, you know, movies, TV, that sort of thing, um, as well as, you know, the technology that makes living with limb loss, you know, more rewarding, some of the trends that are happening in that field. So, um, you know, we really want to not only build a community of people with limb difference, but also then reach out beyond that community and and kind of, uh, you know, reach out to people who are new to limb difference and need to understand it better. And the Paralympics is a perfect vehicle for that mission. Um, And so, when I first got involved, which was, as I said, November of 2019, you know, we thought at that time that we were about 10 months away from the Paralympics. And we thought, oh, man, you know, we really need to get into gear. We need to hustle in order to uh, build out uh, some content and make some connections and really tell some of these stories. Because these are stories that totally build that bridge between people with limb difference, people with other disabilities, as well as able-bodied people. And we knew that there was going to be a lot of attention paid to the Paralympics uh, in 2020 by comparison to previous years, at least here in the United States. So uh, as it turned out, we ended up having a lot more time to work on our content, you know, um, for obvious reasons. And so uh, we ended up with uh, a full Paralympic website that had biographies of all of the amputee athletes on Team USA. Um, We got to interview uh, more than a dozen amputee athletes who either made Team USA or in a couple cases, they didn't quite earn a slot on the team. Um, But we had some terrific interviews. We talked to Hunter Woodhall, the sprinter. We talked to Melissa Stockwell, a a triathlon medalist. Ezra Freck, who's a a young, uh, this is his first Paralympics, he's only 16 years old, 
Uh, but, you know, a, all of these are people who are great ambassadors for Paralympic movement and for uh, living with limb difference. And so, um, you know, we, we really, as it turned out, from our selfish perspective, the delay was really a benefit because we were able to really sink our teeth into it a lot more deeply. And by the time the games um, arrived, you know, we really felt like uh, that that we had a good handle on what the good storylines would be. And then we had a, a daily blog uh, that we updated. You know, we tried to let people know, here's what's coming up tonight. Here's what you might want to tune in for. If you, you know, and then the next morning we would have the results, but we would always put the spoilers at the bottom, right? If the uh, results were overnight, which a lot of them were, uh, we would let people know, stop reading when you get to this point. Um, anyway, it ended up being, you know, a really, I think, a good experience. We got a lot of, um, we got a lot of people that came to our website for the first time. You know, we could track that through our, um, our Google traffic, our Google analytics. A lot of people who didn't know we existed were able to discover Amplitude uh, because they were interested in the Paralympics and they did some Google searches and they found us. So we got a lot of new people within the limb loss community that uh, joined our magazine uh, and became subscribers. And then a lot of people who were just able-bodied viewers who were learning about the Paralympics, learning about people with disabilities, learning with limb difference. So all in all, you know, for, for our purposes, we felt like you know, it was a great way for our magazine to get some more visibility, and we hope it was a really good way to help to build some of these bridges and to tell some stories um, in ways that that really help overall to normalize limb difference, um, you know, as as a concept, and you know, for people to understand it better. I like that. Um, actually, you touched on a couple of points that I would like to talk about throughout our interview. So let's start with the. Um, the, the actual delay or the postponement postponement of the show, um, it was supposed to play on to your point, you know, 2019, you have 10 months to go, 2020 was supposed to hit, and then March of, or yeah, about February, March of 2020 was when, you know, it was unstable. Do we, do we know if it's going to go on? Is it not going to go on? Is it postponed? Is it still going to be called Tokyo 2020? What is going on, right? I, I think for my pair, uh, athletes and I, we didn't know what we're, are we going to training? Are we going to training camps? Are we, what are we going to do? You know, so for us too, it was like watching every day as to what's going to happen. And then I think it was late 2021 when it was, a la uh, sorry, late 2020 when it was announced, it says, yeah, we're going to go on and move forward with this. Um, and then, you know, Tokyo and um, Japan has put in the, these measures to ensure that the athletes will have still the same feeling of competition um, and the audience still somehow get a piece of the action, if you will. Um, how do you think, or what did you think of, or what are your thoughts on how Japan handled the actual events? I think that they overall handled it really well. And I think they had a really difficult job uh, because many people in the Japanese public were opposed to having the Olympics and Paralympics go forward because of concerns about, uh, you know, people from all over the world coming to their country. And, you know, there was a lot of concern there. They already um, have had, you know, prior experience with uh, respiratory viral, you know, epidemics in the past. And so I think 
it was really a difficult situation for the leaders of the country to reassure their citizens and also to create an environment that would facilitate you know, good competition as well as the kind of community, the sense of community that's so important to these events. Um, and to do that without hands in the stands, obviously we, you know, we all would prefer the, the stadiums to be full, but you know, we've gotten used to this, right? We've seen a lot of sporting events by now that were staged in an empty arena or with you know, virtual fans. And so um, I think they, the fact that they pulled it off uh, and the competition was really compelling, it was really entertaining. Um, and, you know, so far as I know, there have not been um, a large, I think there has been documented to be a little bit of an upsurge in cases, but there were not uh, a large number of infections. I don't, I can't think of a single event in which uh, an athlete, uh, because of an infection, it affected the outcome of the competition, right? Like, I, I, unless I missed it, I don't believe there were like, you know, any significant cases of that. And so all in all, I think they deserve a lot of credit because there was a ton of pressure coming from different places to either call off the games or to, you know, water them down in some way. And, you know, they, they went forward and obviously I don't know all of the measures that were in place, but I know that they had some pretty strict measures uh, to ensure that athletes behave responsibly and, you know, did not put themselves or the public in a uh, vulnerable position. And it seems like everybody came through. So, you know, from my perspective, uh, it, it's a huge win. Right. No, I agree. I think, I think maybe the, the stands missing or the, the folks in the stands missing uh, was a big part for me, but I think the way they played off the cameras anyway, it still felt pretty full, um, competing throughout COVID myself, because the events are all happening pretty much at the same time while you're also playing your sports, you kind of don't see the audience anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or right. I don't know if you have just gotten used to that. It's yeah. last, you know, it's like, you know, it it's always sounds like there's enough cheering going on to, to keep you going. But I mean, it, it's probably very different, obviously, at, you know, at the Olympic level, at the Paralympic levels, when you don't have people in the stands, you know, waving flags to you to keep the motivation going and to keep you energized. But I thought they, I, I, I thought that Japan did a good job of, of televising and, and actually playing on with the cameras and playing on with, so it just, it still looks full. Yeah. Um, a, a friend and I looked at it when, you know, from the far shots distance, and we're just talking logistics of what it looks like um, and how the seats look like they're full because of the colors of the seats, you know, like they had different colors on the seats and different, not just sectional of this, like where you're sitting on the level or section, it just, the way they have, all the different colors on the seats. So we just, it looked full, you know. Yeah, they did a good job. It was kind of as if people had different colored clothing on in the seats. And, you know, there, there also were some people in the stands waving flags, right? You know, you could have like your close supporters, whether it was family or, you know, I know a lot of teammates went out to support one another, right? If, if I'm a swimmer and I don't have an event that day, I might go out to the track stadium to root on someone um, on track and field. And so I do think that, that athletes tried to 
from what I could see anyway, they tried to support each other in that way to add some of that um, emotional boost and just the sense of, you know, that you've got uh, some support behind you. Speaking of support, there's been a lot of um, controversy leading up to the games with family members come, being able to come, assistants being able to come with them and all of that. I myself was volunteering to go. I said just to cheer people on. And of course, I have teammates that are, you know, competing. And so, you know, I was ready and prepared to like, I'll, I'll just go for, for the sake of cheering people on. And has it not, you know, have we not had COVID? I think I would have gone anyway. Um, I had been wanting to go. Uh, and I thought, what a great opportunity to just be there for, for the Paralympic Games. Um, but going back to my, my question with, you know, uh, some athletes coming out of, of uh, competition because their assistants weren't able to go or family members weren't able to go that they need them. Um, I can't remember the, the name of the swimmer, the American swimmer, whose um, mom couldn't go, that she was the blind swimmer. And right. so um, I wanted to touch on that and what your thoughts were and where do you think the IOC or the Olympic organization could maybe, you know, be better at that, you know, beyond the, the circumstances that we are in now? Yeah, that was a, a, a very unfortunate um, outcome. And the woman was a swimmer. Her name will probably come to me after we're done with this interview. It's on the tip of my tongue and I just can't come up with it. But this young woman was definitely a medal contender. Um, I think she won medals in 2016. So this was not a insignificant uh, loss to the games overall. Um, and uh, for anyone who's not familiar, the IOC ruled that um, her uh, personal assistant, I think it was a family member, would not be permitted to accompany her to the competition venues, to dining venues, uh, and so forth because of the COVID protocols. And um, so the athlete, um, partly in protest, and I think partly, uh, I think it was a combination of feeling that this was, you know, manifestly unfair, as well as uh, some of the same issues that say, um, you know, have, have been raised by other athletes as far as mental health, uh, you know, intense uh, anxiety that that would produce to have your routine disrupted when you are used to having that personal assistant there. And that's like a, a level of comfort of just things that you don't have to think about. So you can concentrate on your sport, concentrate on your mental focus and your, you know, keeping an emotional equilibrium that gets way thrown off when you introduce this variable and it seemed kind of arbitrary that that particular ruling was made. So, and, and they got, I think the IOC got deserved criticism for that. It did make some headlines, especially here in the US, but I think those headlines were also reverberated internationally. And I, I hope that that, that will be revisited. Um, you know, unfortunately the IOC does tend to be, they have a stubborn streak. Um, when this came up, you know, I know that the, the athlete in question had tried behind the scenes to get this ruling changed um, for a long time before, before she finally said, if, if they are not going to make any accommodation for me, then I cannot perform at my best and there's no point in going. So um, it's unfortunate that that happened. And, um, you know, I, I hope that that will uh, be a lesson for the IOC, maybe that, that uh, you know, 
overall that that the mental health of athletes we saw it with um you know simone biles in the uh, olympics we've seen it with naomi osaka in tennis and um it's really um i think going to be an issue throughout all of sports that's going to be a lot more uh discussed going forward and hopefully treated um you know more more fairly more equitably i'm hoping anyway that um pairs We'll we'll look at that as a lessons learned, and you know, and say, okay, these are the accommodations we need to make, not just from pairs themselves running the show, but also here's what we learned, IOC learned from from holding the Olympics this way, and through a lot of restrictions and a lot of you know a lot of these things that's going on beyond our control. That here are the things that we can do for our athletes. I mean, I think this year, and again, I don't know if because I am a member of the um, the adaptive community, the adaptive athlete community or adaptive sports community, if you want to call it that. But I felt that there's a lot more attention this time around. And I'm 50-50 in the way that it's handled. Um, I know NBC has done a great job of showing it this year. And I think it's the very first time, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, the first time that the U.S. station, a major U.S. station, has actually covered a lot of the Paralympic Games. I believe in Canada, it's also the first time CBC, who's only shown usually the Olympic Games, and would show snippets of the, the highlights, but not a full-on uh, Paralympic Games. And, and we've had challenges of which sports to show as well. And um, actually, I have a member of the women's sitting volleyball team who advocated that sitting volleyball be televised on TV. So even though I think there's a great win um, for, you know, the Paralympics being televised, there's also some some lessons learned there as well. What were your thoughts on why NBC did it, and 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 what you know, would did you think it was a good representation, and 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 what did you hope, or what do you hope that it accomplished? Yeah, you know, we were fortunate to get to interview. Um, the um, you know NBC's uh, someone from their production team, um, and and to be able to uh, ask them directly what led to the decision from Rio, where the total broadcast of Paralympics in the U.S. was six hours, right? It was like one or two highlight shows, you know, that were done on only on cable, on, you know, NBC's cable properties. And this year, the number of hours broadcast was 1,200, okay? So it's, like, insanely enlarged, right? It was really, they really did, I, I think, you know, they really made a, a, an attempt to present the games in full. Uh, so they had a lot of live coverage. Not all of it was broadcast, but it was all streamed, right? So you could stream it on your iPad or your phone or your laptop. That's how I watched most of the competitions um, that I tuned into because I really wanted to get it live. And then they had uh, every day they had um, highlights on uh, MSNBC, one of the cable channels uh, that would be, you know, it was usually during prime time and it would usually be the events that had already occurred earlier in the day because of the time zone difference. Um, and so I prefer to watch the events live, and so you know, I would I would try to stream them as much as I could. 
but you had options, right? As a viewer, you had all these different options for how to engage with the games. And so I think that encouraged more people to do it. And then, um, you know, as far as why this was done, I think there's a couple reasons behind that that, that we learned. Um, one is that people in the U.S. have seen how the games have exploded all over the rest of the globe, right? There are huge audiences in Great Britain ever since the London 2012 games. Brazil gets enormous audiences. Japan has always had a lot of engagement. Um, so, you know, the uh, in France, where the, the next games will be staged, um, the audiences are nearly as big for the Paralympics in those countries as for the Olympics. And it's not just people with disabilities that are watching. It's the entire community, the entire culture that's tuning in. And so I think that NBC realized that there's an audience to be kind of cultivated there that maybe we need to work on. But they needed sponsorship support, right? They couldn't put the games on if they couldn't sell the advertising. And the, the real linchpin there was Toyota. We came forward and Toyota has always supported, um, you know, uh, the adaptive sports community um, and mobility in general, right? Just beyond sports, they've supported, uh, you know, people with disabilities. They came forward uh, to NBC and said, we want to see this happen and we will commit a certain amount of um, advertising dollars as a sort of down payment, if you will. So that, that gave NBC the green light to then start committing a certain amount of resources, not only to producing the games, but also then to sell. And so they brought in Nike as a sponsor. They brought in Eli Lilly um, as a sponsor. Uh, Samsung was a big sponsor. But Toyota kind of opened the floodgates there. And so it was that partnership that really made it possible. And then there's one other factor here, which is, you know, we've talked about Paris already, 2024. The next games beyond that, 2028, will be in Los Angeles. And so NBC realizes what a huge opportunity that is to, you know, showcase these sports. And I think that they want to begin now to not only to cultivate the audience, but also to really say there's value in these sports, right? That, you know, we value them enough to devote a lot of airtime to them and a lot of resources to them. And we want people to understand who the athletes are and who the personalities are to learn some of the rules of some of these sports where they differ from able-bodied and um so i think all of those things came together i haven't seen what the ratings have been yet that'll be really interesting you know um the initial uh, uh opening ceremonies ratings were pretty good um but you know, as far as the actual competition, um, I, I still haven't seen them. Maybe they've had some information trickle out, but um, without question, um, it's a significant um, difference uh, in how the games have ever been presented here in the U.S. And you know, uh, I, I'm not familiar with with uh, what CBC's history has been, um, but you know, in, in some of the streaming. Um, that I uh, saw, actually, NBC borrowed CBC's feed on a couple of different sports, and so I, you know, I was able to to hear some of the coverage there. Um, but all in all, it's sort of like we're catching up. Our continent is catching up to 
uh, all the rest of the world in terms of appreciating the Paralympics and, and engaging with them in, in a really robust way. Oh, yeah. No, I, um, I, I think it's great. Um, and similar here, I would watch between NBC and CBC as well um, to catch, you know, because again, I know some folks on the US team. So it's like, you know, obviously CBC would concentrate on the, on the Canadian athletes um, to, you know, televise their their performances. Then of course, NBC will televise all the um, the American ones. So it's a, there's always a split on both on both channels there. But what I thought was a good thing out of all of that, and, and you kind of touched on it, was the bringing it into the masses, right? That you didn't have to go hunting for a special channel to look for the Paralympic Games, you know, uh, and, and good on Toyota. And I know Toyota has been passionate about that for years, you know, with the robotics um, program and engineering program. Um, it, it's great. Like what they're doing for, for the community is awesome. And so, you know, good on them for, for bringing that forward. Um, you touched briefly on the, um, the 2024. Now that they have a shorter time, what do you think that that's going to look like? Or what lessons learned do you think that, that you know, Tokyo has that Paris can say, you know what, here's how we're going to do this in the next, we have three years, literally. Well, two, really, because the third year is, we're on, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Um, I hadn't really thought about it because I've been focused on, well, what is this extra year provided? Um you know, and we can get into that later on if you want to, because it did, the extra year definitely had some, you know, significant impacts on how certain athletes either benefited or maybe didn't benefit. Um, but for uh, for the next cycle, you know, look, this year, 2021, typically would have been a world championships year for a lot of uh, sports. And so that's out the window. In some sports, I believe they're going to just move their world championships 22 and then maybe they'll have them again in 23 but yeah there is a four-year rhythm that's been disrupted and that disruption continues now um as we go forward and and so um you know it, it will be very interesting i mean you know there are um athletes who came onto the scene um as newcomers this year in 2021 who under other circumstances we might think well, you know, they're really going to be formidable in the next cycle because they'll have four more years to train. Well, as you just pointed out, it's not going to be four years. It's a shorter time for people to raise their game and to build on. And, you know, there's also recovery time that's got to be built in there, too. That's going to be foreshortened. So I think we're all going to find out. I honestly, I don't have... Um, really any predictions or ways to, um, you know, to be able to foretell, but it's certainly something as we continue speaking with athletes, it's a question that we'll have to ask, you know, how has your training um, been affected and, you know, are you doing anything differently? Uh, and, um, you know, in some cases people gained advantages or, or maybe were put at a disadvantage. So we'll find out. Yeah. Switching over to the athlete. Um, some of my teammates are like, we're so pumped to go to, you know, it's 29 or 20, yeah, 2019. We're so pumped to go, you know, let's go train. So we're like, okay, we have still have a whole year to train, right? 2020 hit is like, nope, not going to, you know, not going to happen. And so then uh, 2021 hit and you're like, 
Okay, so we can't train. We can't compete anywhere because everything is closed. We can't get classified. It's like only the people who got tickets in 2019 who already did the Worlds will go to Tokyo in 2021. Yeah. And so then as an athlete, you're like, well, what's the point of training now? Yeah. We no, can't go anywhere. All of those things you bring up are things that we talk about with folks all the time. When everything got suspended in the spring of 2020, yeah, there were athletes who had not been classified yet and who all of their training had been predicated on knowing I'm going to be classified in the spring of 2020 at this event, right? And they had they knew what event and they knew uh, everything was pointing toward that event that I'm going to peak at that event so I could do my best performance. And then that's all thrown out the window. You know, training facilities, the, the U- U.S. Uh, Olympic and Paralympic training complex is 70 miles down the road from us here in Colorado Springs. They, they shut that campus down. And many athletes had moved to Colorado Springs to be near that facility and near their coaches. Now they're like, they're running out on the roads of Colorado Springs, or they're trying to find a, a, a middle school with a pool that they can train in, you know, it, it was really dislocating. And, you know, I, I, I even spoke to, um, I mentioned uh, Ezra Freck as one of the athletes I talked to. He lives in Los Angeles and, you know, he described this crazy thing where they'd run all around town, like they'd find a gym that had opened up and they would schedule a workout there. And then like an hour before they get there, the gym says, uh, we had a COVID positive. We got to close down. Right. And then they have to scramble to find somewhere else to get their training in. And so um, we, with, we, as we look forward, I don't know how the classification that'll obviously affect people getting classified for the 2024 games. Right. Because the event schedules are all thrown out of whack. Um, so people who, um, you know, haven't uh, gotten classified yet or, you know, they, they may have a different path to travel to get classified for 2024. You know, the qualifying events are all going to be different team sports, too. Right. You know, like you mentioned, the volleyball. Um, you know, I know that the, the U.S. volleyball team, they went like 18 months between between games, right? All they did was play each other for 18 months. I think they kind of got sick of it. <laughs> and, and then they finally played the Canadian team. That was their first um, the first international competition um, in a year and a half. And so all of those things are going to be factors um, going forward. And I hope that there's some you know real forethought put into it to give athletes a predictable pathway to follow because there was so much uncertainty this time it was really difficult and it it really is amazing that so many athletes performed at their peak given all of the all of the curveballs that were thrown at people this time i think that's where kind of where i was it's like no one's really going to perform all that well because even the uh the gyms here in canada were closed for two athletes at one point they allowed only elite athletes can go to our our you know, Olympic, Paralympic training centers, uh, similar to the ones in Colorado. But for teams, I know my friends who are in a sitting volleyball team, both men and women, none of them live close to one another. So they train in their backyards, in, you know, in their basements, in their living rooms, and then they see each other. So I think that 
for, for the most part, I think it's a team that suffers the most because you don't get to spend that time together. You know, the, the delays that both uh, a blessing in disguise that now you have a year to, to get better, but you really don't on the flip side of that because you can't train together. You can't get strong together. And so the only time to your point earlier about, you know, competitions between 18 months apart is that now you don't even know how the other team plays, let alone how your own team plays. Yeah. And, but that too, uh, the solo athletes, even though you are uh, in a individual sport, that team camaraderie can still be really important and really motivating. Yeah. I've heard that from some individual athletes, some triathletes um, who uh, they missed each other, even though they were all able to train individually. Uh, you know, swimming was the most difficult one for the triathletes to maintain because you do need a pool, but you can always run anywhere you are and you can uh, usually find a, a, a road to, to do your bicycling on, but the, the swimming was difficult but to not be with each other and to be supporting one another and to hold each other accountable in some cases, um, you know, that was missed. But certainly the team athletes, um, here's the thing, the, the uh, volleyball tournament ended up really having some, you know, some good matches. And, you know, I think the two best teams in the world, um, Team USA and Team China, did make it to the final match and those are the same two teams that have played for the gold medal now this was the fourth cycle in a row uh, so even with the uh, uncertainties and the lack of, of team togetherness and everything I think that the result still reflected probably you know the, the best teams in the world but uh, and, and you know wheelchair rugby there was some great matches in fact one of the matches i enjoyed the most was usa versus canada they put on a fantastic show uh and uh so you know even though those teams weren't able to play together they still managed to get it together to to play really entertaining and and high level uh rugby and uh you know the wheelchair basketball had some really terrific matches too so a credit to all the athletes, the athletes, the coaches. You know, this is something we've written about for the last 18 months. It's called adaptive sports, right? You know, something happens that interferes with plan A, and so you move to plan B. You find a new solution. You find a new way to do something you've always done a different way. And adaptive athletes probably, uh, from a mental standpoint, were much better able to adjust than uh, Paralympic athletes, perhaps, because making adjustments is is what they do. And uh, so maybe that's why we were able to see, you know, such fantastic competition in spite of all of the, the craziness of the last 18 months. Um, speaking of athletes, both the Olympians and Paralympians, uh, uh, U.S. teams, have been very vocal about um, the pay gaps. And now there looks to be some sort of, I guess, some bumps in the pay. Uh, for Paralympians specifically, um, what were, can you give us sort of the, the, the precursor to all of that and what that looks like for the U.S. team and what it looks like today? Sure, yeah. Uh, until 2018, the 2018 Winter Paralympics, um, all the way up until then, in the U.S., uh, a medal for an Olympic athlete, you would get a bonus that was five times 
the amount that a Paralympian would get for the equivalent medal. So to put hard numbers to this, a, a gold medal Olympic athlete would get a $25,000 bonus. A Paralympic athlete would get 5,000 for a gold, right? And, and, and all the way down, right? So, so a, a bronze was worth one fifth whatever an Olympian would get. So after Rio, the Olympic athletes were saying, you know, we, the, the Rio, or, I'm sorry, the Rio Olympics uh, were hugely successful um, all the way around. And the Olympic athletes were saying, we feel like we need more support. We feel like we should get bigger bonuses. And so they were lobbying for uh, bigger bonuses, feeling like they were being underpaid. The Paralympic athletes in the U.S. then said, well, hold on a second. <laughs> I think you're underpaid. What about us? And so a conversation ensued among, you know, there are various councils in the U.S., uh, athlete councils that are part of the overall governing structure. And, you know, a lot of conversations had to go on. Sometimes they got uncomfortable. Um, but long story short, um, there was uh, a real uh, push for Paralympic athletes to say, you know, justify this to us. Justify the uh, fact that even though Paralympic athletes are working just as hard, facing all the same challenges, you know, engaging in all of the same um, uh, discipline that an Olympic athlete is, why we should be valued so much lower. And over time, they wore, wore down the leadership, and I think they made the leadership uncomfortable enough that after the 2018 Winter Games, retroactively, they said, we are going to pay equivalent bonuses to our Winter Paralympians. And so that was the first time that it became um, that, that those, those pay uh, uh, that the pay became equitable. It was done retroactively. So the athletes going into those games didn't know. In this case, it was the first cycle where the athletes knew going in. We are all on an equal playing field. And um, I spoke with uh, one of the athletes in the U.S. who was a big part of those conversations. Her name's Katie Holloway. Um, she is uh, an amputee who's on the sitting volleyball team. She's actually the captain of the U.S. team. And uh, uh, was one of the athlete representatives who worked alongside Brad Snyder, who's another American athlete. He's uh, visually impaired, previously was a swimmer and won a number of medals in swimming. And then in Tokyo, he switched over to triathlon. He won a gold medal in the triathlon. But he was also very instrumental in lobbying uh, the, the leadership of the, the U.S. Uh, Paralympic, Olympic and Paralympic Committee. During Tokyo, then it came out that the Australian Committee has decided to equalize the pay. And so hopefully this is a trend that's um, going to become more widespread because, you know, the TV ratings are now starting to become more equitable. Uh, there, you know, there's certainly throughout the rest of the world, the number of people tuning in, uh, to the Paralympics are almost as big. And so it, it really should be um, equal. And I think that's an important message that goes beyond sports, you know?
a lot of what our magazine covers outside of the realm of sports is, uh, you know, employment opportunities for people. And uh, it is, it's, you know, the unemployment rates are extremely high in the U.S. for people with disabilities. In many cases, it's, you know, it is just pure prejudice. People can't get an interview. Uh, they can't, they get screened out in the, you know, pre-interview stage. They have a disability because of assumptions that people make uh, uh, of what your limitations would be if you're in a wheelchair or if you wear a prosthesis or if you're visually impaired or whatever. Uh, and so uh, that is something that hopefully the higher visibility of the Paralympics can alter perceptions in a way that reverberates beyond the world of sports. And so that if you're not an athlete, but you're an accountant or you're a nurse or, you know, whatever you might do, that there won't be this uh, assumption that because you have a physical disability that you're then going to somehow be like a less capable performer. Um, and hopefully people will perceive uh, adaptations occur. And in many cases, people you know, are actually better performers. You know, they're just a little more on the ball. They're a little more dedicated. There's a little more creativity involved in finding ways to do things. And uh, so I feel like that that pay gap closing, hopefully as a, a forerunner of, of pay gaps um, closing elsewhere in our society. Oh, I think you bring up a very good point. I'm not sure um, where Canada is on uh, closing in on that pay gap, but there is a pay gap here as well, obviously similarly to everyone else. But when you hear, you know, other countries from the Olympic side, not the Paralympic side, you know, bringing home a medal means, you know, taking home 1 million or whatever, right? And, and you look at yourself and saying, well, wait, where's my share? But my sport costs more money than yours. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not, you know, um, but it's true. Um, it's true, it is, man. Right. Um, for a thrower, you know, uh, able-bodied thrower, you buy a discus, you buy a shot put, you buy uh, uh, a javelin. Sure, great javelins cost you up about a thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars, right? Uh, discus maybe good two hundred fifty dollars, right? Shot put maybe ninety bucks. I'm not saying that it's it's not money. Sure. However, my chair to throw with that I need to to, to be able to participate in my sport is about five thousand dollars without my implements so far, right? right? Just just the chairs. Then there's the belts that come along with all of that, and then there's right. hauling that material or hauling that equipment back and forth to training. And so you'll need a bigger car or a truck to right. to haul all that. And I and and I think. To me, that's kind of where also I train equally as you, you know, in the same sport, but my cost is so much higher than yours. Right. You know, for prosthetic wear athletes, um, our blades, I also wear blades. Yeah. <laughs> they're a lot of money. And right. if you break them, you know, there goes another amount of money coming of out of your pocket. But you're not asking for more money because of that. You're just asking for equal Hey, that's, you know, that's where it seems really incredibly unfair to send the message that these sports are less valuable um, when people are, you know, showing, no, these are incredibly important. We're, we're pouring our own dollars 
you know, we're putting our own skin in the game. So why are the national committees not supporting that commitment? It really, I think that the moral weight of that argument in the U.S. finally became too great to resist, you know, where the athletes are saying, we, we're putting the commitment down. Where, you know, where is the, the national commitment? Yeah, you're not asking to have more money than any an able-bodied athlete. You just want the same amount, and then you'll plunk down those costs yourself, or you'll raise the money, or you'll get the support from somewhere. But don't have me start at a disadvantage, and then have these additional costs. That that totally is unfair. Right. No, I um I like that way of looking at things that way. Right. It just it makes sense. Like I, you know. Um, it, it, you brought up a good point um, on our segment earlier about, uh, you know, accountants and equal pay. So it still kind of goes along this way of things. What are your hopes that this gap conversation in equality and pay gap and the, how the Paralympics is shown on TV in mass media today, what are your hopes that it translate moving forward into society? Like to your point earlier about, you know, equal pay as a, as a person who not only gets interviewed, pre-screened and interviewed and then actually companies and organizations be accommodating and providing, you know, I always find that accessibility is an afterthought and I always advocated for, we are part of society. We consume products. We buy a lot of products, right? So you need to employ us and make sure you're, you know, not only are your products accessible also, and it's not an afterthought, because we're likely to buy those products from the money we earn from your companies making accessible products or making your products accessible. So my thought in all of this is that hopefully with this en masse showing of the Paralympic Games is that people just don't see inspiration porn, if you will, and just they see that, you know what? This is a large part of the community, as we the 15 says, was 15% of the, the, you know, the population. Do you think it will trigger, or are your hopes that it will trigger that conversation to move into beyond sports? Do you point? Yeah, I do. I do have those hopes, and I think it's already happening to a degree. There's a long way to go, but I I see things that make encourage me uh, in how this conversation is changing. And as you said, it's moving beyond this inspiration porn. Um, and moving more into a realm where, um, you know, to go back to the beginning, normalizing disability, normalizing limb difference, so that it's not seen as a separate category, but that it's on the spectrum of humanity. And it's just, it's one portion of that spectrum, but it is not a different animal. You know, it's not a different spectrum. And so, that we all share uh, a commonality there. And so where do I see this happening? One area is in fashion, okay? Um, you know, th there's actually a number of Paralympic athletes who do modeling, you know, as, as part, of their, uh, part of their income. Uh, so big brands like Nike and Tommy Hilfiger and Target, um, you know, they have uh, adaptive lines of clothing uh, that they, you know, they market and they present them not in a inspirational way, but just as 
you know, these are like really cool clothes, you know, and most of them, you know, they're not only designed for an adaptive wearer, anyone could wear them, but they accommodate you if you do have adaptive needs, right? And so I think that's one of those trends that um, helps move to normalize the concept of disability. Um, and I, I see that happening. And I, I think that that's encouraging. You know, advertising is, an, is another area, right? The Jessica Long commercial got a huge amount of attention. Uh, it was a Toyota commercial. It was originally intended to be shown during the 2020 Paralympics when we thought that they would be held in 2020. When those got postponed, they then showed it during the Super Bowl, the NFL Super Bowl instead. And it, you know, it really got a lot of attention. There were some inspiration porn um, echoes there, but what it really, I think, did by and large was that it was such an artfully done commercial that you know, people just thought it was a beautiful storytelling. Um, it was a beautiful narrative. And, uh, you know, and Jessica Long herself was was really thrilled with it and felt like it represented her in, in a positive way. And so, you know, there are more commercials that you see out there now in which uh, I, I've seen half a dozen of them or so where you'll see a person in a wheelchair, a person wearing a prosthesis, you know, a person... Uh, who's visually impaired with a cane, and they just kind of pop up in the advertising. There's not a lot of attention drawn to them. It's not like that they are there uh, to make a big point. They're just kind of, they're part of the community. But the fact that they are visible now um, is something that helps people to recognize. Um, and, and so that's another thing that I see happening already that is encouraging to me. Um, one other thing specifically related to employment, a lot of big corporations in the U.S. Uh, have, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion committees, um, which address a wide range of issues, but disability is definitely one of those, and it's um, a way for people within the company to speak to management and say, here's how we could make our workplace more accessible, right? Here are either whether it's physical accommodations within the um, within the workplace, or maybe it's like accommodations to be able to work remotely sometimes, um, or ways to accommodate if I'm going to be on a on a team that needs to travel to a client site, you know, to facilitate travel for someone who um, you know needs those accommodations. All of that is those conversations are are beginning to happen, um, and I think that there's the recognition that companies that uh, that engage in those conversations constructively, they actually perform better because they have a bigger talent pool, right? They're drawing on um, talent out in the community that maybe other companies are overlooking. And, you know, that's actually been documented in terms of shareholder returns for companies that have a progressive attitude towards accommodating people with disabilities in their workforce. Uh, the numbers don't lie. Those companies perform better. They are tapping talent that other companies um, have cut themselves off from. So um, the Paralympics is just another vehicle to get all of those different conversations going. Um, and, I, you know, I really do have high hopes that uh, as we go through a couple more cycles and the Paralympics becomes a regular thing on the sports calendar, 
um, that it's going to, you know, have, you know, it's going to help to build bridges is the way, really way to look at it. So, yeah, I'm very hopeful about it. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. There's certainly a lot of work to, ahead of, of all of us, really. And with 2024, Paris 2024 coming pretty much literally around the corner, uh, we didn't even get to Beijing, which I'd love your opinion on at another time, um, because I didn't realize it, that it's six months from now or seven months from now. And I was like, oh, wow, right. Okay. That soon. So, I, you know, uh, thank you for all your feedback and your, your insight today. That's really good. Um, where where can we find you, Larry, and, and, and maybe give everybody, uh, uh, you know, direction on where to get Amplitude? Sure. Absolutely. Um, our website is livingwithamplitude.com. Okay. So living with Amplitude all run together. Uh, you can subscribe right there on the website. You'll see the Paralympic drop down menu bar. So if you want to check out our coverage, it is US centric. Um, and it's also it's amputee centric. We have, you know, a little bit of information about people with other disabilities, but our audience are primarily people with limb difference. And that's the, the segment of the athletes that we focused on. We're going to be as you said, Beijing's coming right up. We're going to be swapping out all of our um, our summer Paralympics coverage in the next couple of months and teeing up our winter coverage. Uh, and, you know, looking forward to that for sure. Uh, and you can uh, uh, also just, you know, if you Google Living with Amplitude, you'll be able to find us that way. We have a weekly newsletter in addition to our print publication and you can subscribe to either or both the, the print publication is six times a year uh, the newsletter is uh, every week every Wednesday you know we absolutely would love to have more subscribers or you know we're we're growing we're trying to build a community and and you know we want to be a platform for people in the community to come together and, and to grow together and uh, you know help build bridges beyond the the limb difference community, um, you know, into the broader culture. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, that, there's that sense of community and just going back to sports, whether or not your competitors are on the stage, but you know, as soon as you get off that stage, right, it's like, you know, let's go get nachos and beer or whatever that yeah. may be, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's that community. I, I think that applies everywhere, you know, and it's always so hard sometimes to find your next door neighbor you know quotation um that has a maybe a lived difference or a person with a disability but uh i think that's what the, the good thing of, of bringing stuff online is that there's no geographical um limitations if you will uh to have that sense of community so that's that's really good yeah and you know like your podcast and and other you know shows uh build that community too. And, and those are things that didn't used to really be available before the internet. And it's, uh, it is really helpful for people to be able to find one another and to feel connected. Um, uh, you know, Absolutely. I appreciate the chance to come on for sure. It's, you know, it's really nice to get to meet you virtually and, uh, you know, hope that we can, uh, you know, keep the conversation going and, you know, maybe when Beijing comes around, we can talk again. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to that. This is great, Larry. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to thank Larry Borowski for joining me today. I will share all the links on my website at www.aristotlebingo.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The MPO Show. 
Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been the MPO Show Podcast.